great to be here together this morning. It's great to gather and it's great to sing together, isn't it? There's something special about live music, isn't there? That's it's different to a recording. I was reminded of that again on Friday evening when some of us went to the Faith and Arts session at Trinity College and listened to Chris Paulson play some amazing jazz music with his trio. It was a really fun evening. Uh, There was something so wonderful about being there in person, feeling the beat, watching the musicians interact and the audience respond. Listening to recordings is one thing, uh, but to get the full experience, you've got to be there in person. And I think that's why it can be frustrating sometimes to communicate after the fact, right? Uh, You and your friends are trying to tell someone a funny story about that thing that happened that was so hilarious in the moment, and to a certain extent they get the joke, but it's not the same. In the end, what do we say? You had to be there. Um, To get the full experience, you've got to be there in person. So I wonder if you've ever felt frustrated with God in a similar way. Uh, Not about trying to explain an in-joke, but about the hard things, the painful things. When you're trying to talk to God about your disappointments and daily struggles. After all, he's the all-powerful, transcendent, glorious creator of the universe. What does he know about loneliness or feelings of failure Or just the bone-deep weariness of the day-in, day-out struggle to keep all the balls in the air and not let anything drop. He doesn't know what it's like to be me. And we probably wouldn't say that, or even necessarily think in those terms, but I wonder if deep down that feeling of frustration might be sitting there. For all of us going through hard and painful things, which I think is all of us, I want us to see in this passage the way that Jesus joins us in our suffering. He's had the full experience. He's been there in person. He came to earth as a human man in the incarnation, like us in every way, and suffered death as one of us, not just to experience human pain, but to fulfill our glorious purpose, to make us his family and to offer us help in our need. So come with me to Hebrews 2, uh, and we'll start at verse 5, where the writer introduces this section with a quote from the Psalms about God giving glory and authority to humanity. So we read verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? a son of man, that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Back in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about the glorious Son of God who, after making purification for sins, has been exalted and now rules over all things as God's anointed king, including the angels. But here we see that it's humanity that God gives authority to. The writer is quoting from Psalm 8, where the psalmist, King David, marvels at God's generosity in putting all creation under the authority of mankind. Now, this uh, is a a reference itself to Genesis, 
Uh, In Genesis 1, God instructs the man and the woman to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He puts creation under their authority to rule over as his image bearers. That sounds amazing. But again, if, if you've read Genesis, you'll know that things don't quite stay like that. The man and the woman are deceived by the snake. They disobey God and they seek to exert their own authority apart from God. And you only have to look around at the world we live in to see the results. The writer of Hebrews gets that, and he points out what's painfully obvious to us living in a fallen world. At the end of verse 8, he says, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. That image-bearing dominion given in Genesis 1, that glorious gift of authority marveled at in Psalm 8, it doesn't match up with our experience of the world. And even today, in a world full of scientific advancement and technological achievements, however much we'd like to think that we rule over creation, however much we want to exert our own authority apart from God, it doesn't take much to show our failure and inadequacy, does it? Even just a quick scroll of the news headlines will tell a disturbing story of our failure to rule according to God's design. Conflict and death disease and poverty, pollution, extinction, corruption, and oppression. That's the world we see around us. Now, we may seem to get to grips with bits and pieces of the world here and there. Our nature as image bearers hasn't been erased, but it has been damaged. When you look at humanity on the whole, we're misguided and weak at our best, and malicious, selfish tyrants at our worst. A far cry from the vision of Psalm 8. At present, we do not see everything subject to them. This is a real problem for us. We're not fulfilling our God-given purpose as image bearers. Our selfishness and sin have opened the gulf of division between our lived reality and God's design for us. And unless something changes, well, nothing will change. But as we continue on in the text, to verse 9, we're met with a beautiful solution to our deep problem. Uh, Verse 9, at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What humanity has failed to do, we now see accomplished in Jesus. He's ticking those Psalm 8 boxes, isn't he? In his life as a man, in the incarnation, he was made lower than the angels. Tick. And his ascension to heaven after he was raised, he was crowned with glory and honor. Tick. The rest of humanity, we couldn't do it. But Jesus fulfills our failure to rule. And notice how it is that he does it. He was made lower than the angels for a little while. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. That's the solution. The death of Jesus. In order to fulfill the glorious rule and authority given to humanity that we failed to uphold, 
Jesus needed to suffer and die. Indeed, the basis for his exaltation is his death. Uh, What's the link? Well, it's precisely through Jesus' humiliation and death on the cross that we see most clearly his worthiness to be exalted. It is at the cross that Jesus shows his refusal to mistrust God's goodness, even though it means brutal suffering for him. He does what none of us could do and remains faithful and obedient even to death. Not grumbling, not hiding away, not exerting his power to save himself from discomfort. Where Adam and Eve assert their selfish authority in the garden, where all of us uh, look for our own ways for easier compromise at the cost of obedience, Jesus stands fast to the very end. And in doing so, he displays his own suitability to be crowned with glory and honor and to fulfill that vision of human rule laid out in Psalm 8. Here is the man who truly shows by his life and death the glorious sufficiency, goodness, and trustworthiness of God over and above any earthly comfort. Jesus fulfills our failure to rule through suffering death. But it's not just a demonstration for the sake of demonstration. His death isn't just to prove a point about how faithful he is. Uh, Verse 9 says that by the grace of God, he tastes death for everyone. That is, in God's kindness towards undeserving humanity, failed rulers that we are, Jesus dies not just to prove himself, but he dies on our behalf. He tastes the bitter cup of death and judgment that we deserve to drink. And so because of that, his fulfillment of our purpose counts for us too. And in his glorification, he brings us with him to glory. The exaltation that he receives as rightful ruler is to our benefit also. We can see that in the next verse, uh, where the writer shows us how in his suffering, Jesus opened the way for us to share in his glory. So verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That Psalm 8 glory and honor and ruling over creation that Jesus demonstrates is not just for him, but he goes ahead of us as pioneer to bring us along to join him in glory. So the world to come is not subjected to angels, but to King Jesus as the perfect man, and to us who are united to him in his death and look forward to his return. Jesus suffered death as one of us to fulfill our glorious purpose and bring us to glory with him. What a wonderful hope that gives us. This broken and chaotic world we live in will not persist. The injustices and abuses of power we see will not go unanswered for. There will come a day when everything will be made new and all of creation will flourish and thrive under the just rule of the perfect King Jesus as we reign together with him in glory. Do you long for that day? Amidst the daily stresses, the joy and pain of friendship and family, the pressures of expectations and the weight of responsibilities, 
I want you to remember that if you are in Christ, you are bound for glory. When the world feels a dark and painful place, when you are confronted by your own weakness, remember that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And through his suffering, he offers a joyful hope for the future. He doesn't come to us and say, see, I could do it, why can't you? You just need to try a little harder. Instead, he says, I've made a way for you. I've done what needs doing on your behalf. I've felt the pain you feel. Come with me and I'll bring you to where you need to be. Though in our sin and weakness we fail to rule as God designed us to, Jesus fulfills our glorious purpose as one of us. And in going to the cross, he opens the way for us to join him in his glorious rule. That's the hope we have as we look ahead. And not only will we reign with him in the world to come, but we're united to him as family now. In the incarnation, Jesus permanently joins himself to humanity, and he calls us his brothers and sisters. Our relationship isn't just a functional connection, it's a warm familial bond. So let's continue into the next section from verse 11, where we see Jesus' brotherly love for us. Verse 11, uh, both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, uh, and those who are made holy, that is us who believe, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. We're family. Though Jesus is the one who makes us holy when we couldn't help ourselves, yet we are of the same family. And he's not ashamed to call us family. I want you to hear this because I think this is so crucial. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. I think a lot of us know what it's like to have a family member we're a bit ashamed of. That uncle you secretly hope won't show up to the family gathering. The cousin that no one talks about. Maybe a sibling or a parent you dread having to introduce to your friends. Or maybe you felt like the odd one out in your family. The one the others are a bit embarrassed of. That's not how Jesus sees you. You are not a second-rate sibling. Though he has every right to be ashamed of our sinful hearts and our fleshly weaknesses, and though our sinful failure to rule under God as his image bearers has divided us from God, Jesus draws near as one of us to fulfill our purpose, to give us his holiness, and to bring us to glory with him without any shame or embarrassment. And so we see these quotes from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, where these words in the mouth of Jesus speak of his joining together with us, his brothers and sisters, to trust in God and rejoice in his salvation of his people. Jesus, our brother, is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you. 
So when you feel the guilt of your sin as a wall to cut you off from God, run to Jesus who makes you holy. And when you feel disgusted with yourself over your past actions and attitudes, unable to face God, cling to Jesus who tasted death for you to make you his family. When you feel the weight and weariness of your continued weakness and vulnerability, rest in Jesus, who has made lower than the angels to open the way to bring you with him to glory. If God seems distant, if it feels like it's hard to relate, remember that Jesus became one of us, and he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Now, even as we take comfort in this precious truth, I want to ask you, which of your brothers and sisters in Christ are you tempted to be ashamed of? The socially awkward one you secretly dread getting stuck in a conversation with? The one with the loud political opinions you find it hard to be gracious about? The one from a different church background that you disagree with? Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters either. So let's not fall into the trap of judging our spiritual siblings the way that the world does. Uh, So I hope you can see how fundamentally Jesus' incarnation shapes our relationship with him and with each other. That Jesus came as a man means he can fulfill our failure to rule, that he can taste death for everyone, that he can bring us with him to glory, and that he can call us family. He's come to be with us in person, not distant or foreign, but one of us. He knows what it is to be human. And in the final section of our text, we see that because he came and suffered death as one of us, he can actually give us the help that we need. Along with the future hope of glory and the present comfort of family, he offers us help in our ongoing weakness. Let's read from verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, all their lives, were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants." For this reason, he had to, meet, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Just like it's not angels who will rule with Jesus, but humanity, it's not angels he helps, but, but us, those who trust God like Abraham. And not as an outsider stepping in, but as one of us, with flesh and blood, enduring suffering, fully like us in every way. I think it would be easy to see Jesus in the incarnation like a, an international humanitarian aid worker, uh, leaving home to go to some faraway impoverished place to help the locals, Compassionate, yes, generous, sure, even selfless and genuinely helpful. But when the project finishes and the help is delivered, they head home to their own community and leave the locals to get on with life. 
that's actually not how Jesus treats us. He doesn't just step in, solve some problems, and then retreat to his real home. He becomes one of us, fully and permanently human. Not just kind of like us in some ways so that he can help out, but just like us, fully human in every way. He's got the full experience. He's come in person. And so he's able to continually offer us the help we need. Uh, And in this section, his help takes four forms. Uh, We'll work through these fairly quickly before we finish. Help number one. We see in verses 14 and 15 that he frees us from the fear of death. Death is scary. Uh, Not just because of the pain that surrounds it or because it feels so unknown, but because with death comes evaluation. Deep down, each of us knows that we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, in the words of Hebrews chapter 9. We know that we aren't perfect and that our sin deserves punishment. But if our sin is dealt with, then death loses its fear. There's no more threat of punishment, and Satan's accusations are baseless. So because he took on full humanity, Jesus can die and by his death defeat Satan. Because sin is paid for and God's righteous anger is satisfied in Jesus' death, Satan has no grounds to accuse you before God. If you trust in Jesus and his death for you, then death will not bring judgment for you, only vindication and glory with the Lord Jesus. So fear of death no longer enslaves us. It doesn't drive us to seek security or build a legacy in the way that the world does. We can look to eternity with hope. Help number two, Jesus helps us by becoming our merciful and faithful high priest, verse 17. Now, the concept of Jesus as a high priest is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, uh, which gets developed much more in the later chapters. It's only mentioned briefly here, so I won't go into great detail. But what we can see is that as our high priest, he can represent us before God. Since he's fully human as one of us, he can be our legitimate representative. He acts as the mediator that we as sinful humanity need in order to relate to holy God. And he does this mercifully and faithfully. He's not a harsh mediator or an unreliable one, but rather he deals with us mercifully and faithfully as he continues to represent us before his Father. And because he's our high priest, help number three Jesus can make atonement for our sin, the end of verse 17. Uh, In the Old Testament, under God's law, it was the high priest who every year offered a special sacrifice to atone for the sin of the nation on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, That atonement sacrifice was a foreshadow of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. Uh, Now, this is another major theme in the book of Hebrews that gets developed at length later on. Now, here we can see though that it's because Jesus is fully human, he can offer himself as a sacrifice for our atonement. He suffered real death as a real human with real flesh and blood body. And so as he stands in for our deserved death as our representative and substitute, the offense of sin against God is atoned for, God's wrath is turned away, 
and we can be made right with him. This acts as, as the basis for the first help, freeing us from the fear of death, which we talked about earlier. It's on this basis that we no longer deserve punishment, but instead receive eternal life. And then lastly, help number four. Jesus helps us in our temptation. It says that he himself suffered when tempted. That is, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He's been there himself. His in-person human experience included being tempted. Uh, Later in chapter 4, the writer makes it clear that Jesus wasn't just tempted a little bit either. He was tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin. He didn't give in to temptation. But he knows what it is to be tempted. He's felt the pain of self-denial. He himself suffered when he was tempted. And in fact, suffering often itself often brings the strongest temptations. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness as he prepared to begin his ministry that he knew would lead him to the cross. And in the garden on the night of his betrayal, he cried out in anguish to God for another way as he considered the suffering that lay ahead. Yet still he fully submitted himself to his Father's goodwill. When we suffer, we look for comfort. And that's not a bad thing. But it can tempt us to look for comfort in the wrong places. It can bring out our selfishness and cowardice. So we avoid the uncomfortable conversation that we know we need to have. Or we misuse God's good gifts of food or sex or entertainment as an escape from our painful situation. Or we use our suffering to justify our short tempers or bitter words. But in all our suffering and temptation, Jesus has gone before us. He's been there, and he can help. When you feel the pull of temptation, call out in prayer for strength. Draw near to him for comfort. He won't be surprised at your temptation or ashamed of your weakness. He's your brother who loves to offer help. He helps us by freeing us from the fear of death, by becoming our merciful and faithful high priest, by offering an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and he helps us in our own temptation and suffering. So if you've ever felt frustrated with God, that it's too hard to explain your pain to him, I think this passage is immensely comforting. Jesus knows our suffering. He's been through it. He knows what it's like to be a human in a fallen world, to face temptation, to endure through hard times. The Son of God became one of us, fully human, in every way, so that he could taste death for everyone and fulfill our purpose of ruling, bring us with him as brothers and sisters into glory, and offer us help. If God feels foreign or distant, too far removed from daily experience, keep looking to Jesus. See that though he is God, he is not distant. Though he is glorious, he knows what it is to be brought low. Though he is holy, he is not ashamed to call those he makes holy his brothers and sisters. In the hard times, remember this. Jesus came in person as one of us to suffer death for us to bring us with him to glory. How about I pray?
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he doesn't just visit us, um, that he doesn't stay distant from us, but that he is one of us, fully human in every way, that he knows our weaknesses, that he isn't ashamed of us, that he offers us help. Lord, please help us in our weakness, in our sin. Please purify us by the blood of Jesus. Please give us help in temptation and comfort in suffering as we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and we will reign in glory with him. We ask this in his name. Amen.